Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhudasa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Sadanto Suchedo Ye Holahudi San Miao San Putoshe Namo Sadanto Suchedo Ye Holahudi San Miao San Putoshe Wushan Shan Shan Wenya Bai Chen Wan Jie Nan Zao Yu Wo Chin Chen Wan De Shou Chi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture. This is... Saturday night, it's October 19th, November 19th, November 19th in 2011, we're here in Berkeley, California. We're lecturing on the Avatamsaka Sutra's Ten Grounds chapter, and we've come all the way to the third ground, and if you would please turn to the front cover of your text, we'll recite the names of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and get, get going. Namo da fang guang fu a yen ji a yen ai hui fu pu Namo da fang guang fu a yen ji a yen ai hui fu pu Turn to page 44 and 45. 
we're down at the bottom uh, two, two line, four, four actual lines, two idea lines from the bottom of the English on 45 and page 44. It's line two from the bottom. Okay,我们start all right, let's, let's do those two for now. Uh, over to the English. He sees that all beings are forever covered by the dense forest of afflictions. And he feels sympathy. He sees that all beings lack the perspective of contemplation. And he feels sympathy. Okay. This is a uh, bodhisattva on the third ground, and he's uh, where we are. The bodhisattva has opened his wisdom to look at the things of the world, and he sees that the things of the world fall apart. And when we attach to things as we do, we hurt when the things fall apart, especially things we rely upon. So he's seen that. Bodhisattva has witnessed that everywhere. There's nowhere where it's not the case. And the sutra takes us into his heart and says, at that site, the bodhisattva feels sympathy. So we have a sympathetic bodhisattva. And let's look at the characters to get a sense of what that might mean in Chinese. Does what is sympathy for a bodhisattva the same thing that we, we would call sympathy? Could we use empathy? Could we feel pity? Could we say pity? Could we say merciful? The bodhisattva feels merciful. But what's the best way to, to understand what the sutra is telling us the Buddha actually said? Take a look here. Jian Zhu Zhong Sheng sees all sentient creatures. Fan Nao Chou Affliction Dense Forest. Fan Nao. Um, we should probably start there. What is... What is an affliction? The, Chinese, the Sanskrit for it is klesha. Pali is kilesa. And in Chinese is fan nao. The um, Chinese, uh, fan nao, as I understand it, for most Chinese is not a familiar word. It's not, uh, uh, it's not something that, that outside of the Buddhist circle, if you're not familiar with Buddhist circles, you wouldn't use that word to describe troubles likewise affliction in English is a word that I didn't hear much until I came to Buddhism somebody was afflicted I didn't, didn't really get it but we do have a whole uh, bag of words that we can use to describe what this is talking about such as troubles such as 
miseries. Misery is really a good, uh, a good equivalent for klesha. Because if you look at how the, what words the Chinese chose, the fire radical is in the first one. So we know that afflictions or this, this state burns. There's heat involved with affliction. And now, the second word, the mind radical is there. So it's a state of mind. And afflictions are both burning, which is physical, and trouble in mind. It's when you have the blues, when you've got miseries, when you're just miserable, that's, that's kalesha, that's the afflicted state that the Bodhisattva is talking about here. And he uses um, picture words, dense forest, a dense forest of afflictions to describe what's, what the Bodhisattva, what living beings are experiencing. Dense forest of afflictions, heng so fu zhang, always covered over by. So he sees that living beings are always covered over by afflictions, sheng ai mian xin, and he feels what? Sheng means to give birth to. Ai is pity. Min is sympathy. It's a sense of community in feeling. So the Bodhisattva knows what living beings feel. And he has that thought. So he puts himself together with people who are miserable. That's, that's probably plain language for, for what's going on. The Bodhisattva identifies with people's pain. He gets it. He feels it. The Bodhisattva is there in solidarity with people who suffer. So that's what it means. That he, when the Bodhisattva... Um, experiences people in pain, he feels like it's his pain, or she identifies with him. The way what? The way a mother knows what kids, what their children feel without being there. Um, One of the great paragons of filiality in Chinese, um, does everybody know about the Arsha Si Xiao? 24 paragons of filial respect. And depending on the audience, if, if uh, you were raised with those in your own family, often you got beaten over the head with them. You know, people, mom and dad would say, look at how filial children behave. Why can't you behave like that? 24 paragons, the Arshur Si Xiao, the 24 four examples of filial behavior are... Uh, stories of children taken from as far back as the Han Dynasty, which is, you know, slightly after Jesus walked on the planet, 2,000 years old in some cases. Some of them are Song Dynasty examples, but they're, these are stories of children who behaved filially. They, they um, did things that the teachers uh, through the generations said, now here's... This is an example of real filiality. So who are the 24 paragons of filiality? I set about to translate those after I met them for the first time. And I was amazed when you actually open up those stories and get into them. Many, many, many of them come from what you call dysfunctional families. I mean, like there's the story of Min uh, Min Zichen. Min Zichen is... uh, uh, the son of a father who works in the government. He's a civil servant. And his beloved mother dies. And so dad is a good dad, but he's going to work every day. 
So what does he do? He remarries. And dad remarries, and he marries a woman who already has two kids, two sons. So she comes into the house. She loves her two sons. She doesn't love Min Zichen, the son of her new husband. So what does she do? She systematically turns, on, turns around to abuse him at every opportunity to the point where the, the story comes to a head and we, we find out about the, the situation. Dad is totally oblivious to it. He loves his new wife and his, her two kids are fine, you know, but he, he ignores them the way he ignores his own son. So it's cold in this northern city where they live. And mother gives her children warm, padded winter coats. She takes Min Zichen, her stepson's coat, and fills it full of dry grass. So it looks as puffy as the, the, the warm cotton batting coat, you know, duck-down coat, goose-down coat. It has no warmth at all. And so Min Zichen, the guy's own son, drives dad gets, you know, saddles up the horse to the buggy and takes dad to work every day. So one day, Minza Chen's driving along and it's so cold that he drops the, the reins. He can't even control the horse. And so the dad is like, what's going on? What's wrong with you? Why are you such a disobedient son? And he takes his, his little whip that you carry if you're a, a, a gentleman rider and he whips out at his son the lash cuts his coat and out comes the dry grass. And the dad says, what are you wearing in this sub-zero cold? And the kid knows that here's his chance to get revenge on the the mom. Here's his chance to say, she gave me this freezing coat. It's not my fault that I dropped the whip. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say anything. And he just keeps silent. And dad looks at it. And dad is a smart character. And so he goes, where did you get that coat? And he grabs the reins and he drives directly back home and he orders his wife out in the snow and kneel here. Why did you give my son this freezing cold coat? Call your children out. So he calls this and the sons come out with their warm REI down jackets, you know, cold rated as plus zero, you know. And, and so he says, get out of my house to his wife and Min Zichen throws himself between the, his stepmom and dad and says, no, dad, please let her stay. Please let her stay. Because when she was here, only I, one son, suffered cold. But if you kick her out, then three children will not have mother's love. So please let her stay. And dad is so moved by this. And the mother heart breaks. She realizes that this jewel of a stepson that she's been abusing you know, is really a wonderful child. So it all ends happily ever after. And Min Zichen goes on to become, guess what? An official. He passes all his exams and he too rises to become prime minister. And you too can become an official in the government. So, so just be filial. So, he was forever enthroned among the 24 exemplars, 24 paragons of filiality. So that's okay. That's an interesting story. It's a happy ending, right? So what else? And so kids from you know from from the the Han Dynasty on had to measure up to Min Zichen's kind of filiality. You know, thank you, Min Zichen. What else? Uh, Meng Meng Meng. Who's the one bitten by the mosquitoes? Meng Meng Zong Meng Zong Meng Meng. Mm, let's say. Mm, 
Meng Meng Yi. Okay, so number one, he is a he is a poor family, right? Poor family, but totally, totally devoted to his parents and especially his poor widowed mom. So what does he do? They're so poor they can't afford mosquito nets. Can't afford mosquito nets. So mosquitoes, you know, will bite you at night, especially in the summer. And so in order to keep his poor mom, who works so hard to keep him in food, in order to keep her safe from biting mosquitoes, what does Meng Yi do? He, before he goes to sleep, takes off his shirt and goes sleeps next to mom's bedroom. So the mosquitoes will all come and bite him and leave mom alone, right? <laughs> and he makes this pact of, now come on, bite me, leave her alone, come and bite me. I, I'm young, I'm tasty, you know, type O blood, you'll probably like that. I'm a vegetarian, you'll taste really good. So the mosquito, you know, this is filial behavior. So children, Chinese children, ever since, have had to like think, oh no, to be a good son, I gotta go out and get bitten by mosquitoes and turn into this pincushion and itch all night. So that's this kind of story. Well, what happened? The emperor heard about Meng Yi and gave him an education and gave him mosquito netting. And so it all turned out well because he allowed himself to be eaten by mosquitoes. And some of the 24 Paragon stories are actually quite kinky if you get down to it. They're kind of, uh, you know, when you read them, I had... uh, (laughs) There's one. It's quite wonderful. And so back to our sutra, right? So there's this wonderful story about, um, I, I, did, I should have reviewed it. I didn't plan to talk about the Arsis of the Xiao. Um, what's his name? I can't think of his name. As soon as I mention it, any good Chinese child would go, <laughs> you know, because were, we were beaten with these uh, growing up. What is his name? He is poor. The father is poor. And they have children two children, and they have aged mother living at home. Aged mom lives at home. And guess what? Another baby comes along. So they have a son born. He's a, you know, fat, happy, bouncing baby boy. And the father goes, Oh no. We are so poor. Look at my choices. One more mouth to feed. I can't feed both mother and the new baby. Who's it going to be? Who am I going to kill? No joke. The paragon, he has to decide between the mother and the new son. So what does he do? Of course he can't kill mom. She's, she's taking care of mom. She gave him his life. Got to be the baby. So what does he do? He goes out to bury the baby. And as he is burying the baby, he's digging down in the soil to dig the graves. He's going to kill the kid, right? He's going to smother the kid. And his shovel goes clunk, clunk, tonk, 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 tonk. He digs faster, faster, opens up a box full of gold coins. Perfect. Now he can finally find, buy food for both mother and his child. He doesn't have to kill this kid after all. And it was a response. The gods were so busy seeing the Paragon of filiality going to kill his kids so mother can live, so they sent him some gold. You know? <laughs> you go, yeah. Okay, this is our model of how to be a good filial son. 
you know, what is it called, infanticide in order to keep mother alive. So it's like, or it could be a good argument for planned parenthood. If you look at it, you know, maybe fewer kids or more birth control, if you, you know, if you can't afford. So anyway, so story, these are weird stories, man. And <laughs> they're, but there they are. And the 24 paragons of filial, filial piety, filial respect have been celebrated for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And, okay, so the reason why I wanted to um, uh, tell you about this is there are um, other, other filial children. There are the, what do they call it, Sanshiliu, Xiao. There's other collections of filial kids. There are other numerical groupings of kind of like the lesser filial children. And the, um, the things that they are said to do um, are not quite so heinous. Um, if we were to... Um, Find now filial exemplars. I, when I translated that text, I was motivated, other than just passing on the traditional, you know, which there's a reason. As you read these, why were these kind of behaviors chosen for filial as the standards? These are the standards. In almost every case, the families were seriously broken, seriously dysfunctional, either poverty or amazing cruelty or just a situation that how could, you know, how could anybody endure? Um, not all of them are kinky and weird and full of infanticide and, and uh, self-sacrifice of your, you know, your skin to mosquitoes. But in every case, the, the reason why they became exemplars or paragons was they made a choice to, as Master Hua would say, they took the short end of the stick. They allowed themselves to suffer in order to give the benefits to, to somebody, usually their elders. So that's how they became known as filial. And so there's, there's you know, by our standards, 21st century standards, some of these situations could seem kind of extreme or artificial. But if you look at them again and comb through these and think, you know, what there has to be some thread in this that Chinese readers, Chinese ethicists, looked at it and said, this is, this is what we consider really filial. And um, now we're at a time. This, I think the, 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 sort, the reason why I started out in this was that afflictions, this, this word which I hope we find a better one for, for fun now. Uh, troubles, miseries, the miseries here are countered by virtue. How do you get rid of fun now? Well, they say puti, awakening. You wake up. And many, many of the things that give rise to afflictions come from a feeling of I'm insufficient. Inside myself, I don't have enough of fill-in-the-blank. 
love, talent, intelligence, good looks, um, goodness, the things that, that motivate us outwards looking for those things. I'm just not pretty. Everybody else is prettier than I am. So I'm going to have to go out and make myself prettier. And that puts us, what, victim to advertising. We go out looking for constant changes in our appearance. When, in fact, the first movement is looking in and saying, I'm not enough whatever, and it pushes us out. I'm not loved, so therefore, you know what? I'm not lovable. So I'm going to go out and make the world pay until I get enough love from people to convince myself that finally I'm good enough to be considered lovable. And so we're pushed outside, searching, searching, searching for something that can only be satisfied by a sense of inner worth. Right? No amount of external stuff that we think we need is ever going to fill that void. So that's the source of affliction. How do you fill that void? How do we know? When can we know that finally, indeed, we are sufficiently something-something at home and we don't have to run out looking for it outside? The key, the word for it would be virtue. What is virtue? According to Master Hua, he would say virtue is the light of your self-nature, the light of your inherent nature. The virtue, he said, is a light. It's a radiance. For example, he would always say Master Xu Yun, Master Empty Cloud, was full of virtue. He shone. He was so shiny, he was so radiant as a person, that from behind you felt drawn to him. Without even seeing his face, you would know that he was around because he was so virtuous. Now, catch this. This is the key. The Buddha would say, nobody, nobody has less light than anybody else. We all have the exact same amount of virtue light in our, our, our natures are full of light. How come we don't feel it that way? How come we don't notice because we cover it. We cover it over. So as we look inside, we feel dark inside. We feel kind of lights out. Can't really see myself. Always feel deficient, not enough, this or that. Can't find it. I don't know what's the right thing to do. I don't know why I feel so mean and got the blues. Well, from the point of view of the dense forest of affliction why the Bodhisattva feels sympathy is he'd say, yeah, we cover it, we cover it. Okay, is it true? Buddha would say, well, try an experiment. Give your mom a call. Call your mom. Try an experiment. Give something back to your parents. How do you feel? The Buddha would say, add virtue. Not so much add virtue, remove the coverings. You'll shine. So it's exactly the opposite of what the world would say, that we've got to go out and buy more eyeliner or new dress or go out to a club and party harder for fun. Buddha would say, it, you just pull some of the covering, just cut down some of the trees in that dense forest of, of affliction, 
And sure enough, you'll start to shine. You'll feel full. You'll see the light of your virtue shining. And you'll be able to stay home. So, where does that virtue come from? He would say, first virtue is reconnecting with your parents. Find the connection. Trace it back. And maybe you can't talk with them. Maybe your parents are so distant and so afflicted themselves you can't find them. Maybe they're really not there. They're gone. They're absent or passed on or something. He would say, well, find the mother and father in your nature. Because that's how you related to your real parents, maybe more than the actual physical parents you had. Be a good dad to yourself. Be a good mom to yourself. Find that place in yourself that is the paternal and the maternal and be kind and you found that source of virtue. That's the place. Sure enough, as you do that and remove those coverings of affliction over your nature, suddenly there's this sense of, hey, well-being, fullness, completeness. I don't really need another new car. I don't really need different friends or another wife or a different husband. You know, that's the result of removing the coverings, show your virtue shines. Huh. So that's where these filial paragons come in. This, according to our teacher, is the source of virtue. It's also the source of puti, bodhi, the awakening that we do. I mean, check it out. As you look through our teachers, Master Hua, direct teacher, uh, spent three years by his mother's graveside because he cared enough to let her go from him. His teacher, where he, the monk he took refuge with, Changzhi, did the very same thing. The monk who he ordained under, Changren, spent six years by his parents' grave. So... Then we look at Master Empty Cloud, who was so connected to his mother, who died in childbirth, that he bowed across China to repay her kindness, and then did a thousand bows a day for months, repaying her kindness. So here we have Master Xuanhua, Master Xuyun, Master Changzhi, Master Changren, all of whom were by any account filial children. And then you go to, okay, Ursula Bodhisattva's example, then you go to Mahamad Dayayana's example. Then it's like, my goodness, most of the men teachers in our line spent a lot of time addressing that parental bond. How interesting. How, how does that work? So they found something there. And this is so different from what I understood when I first drew near Buddhism. I want to get enlightened now. You know, this weekend, by hook or by crook, get out of my way, I'm getting enlightened. You know, idiot, get out of my way so I can get enlightened. Really, at, at all costs, I'm going to, you know, totally, totally misunderstanding that it's inside and it's not where you think. It's addressing that primary relationship that people actually remove, cut down some of the, or collect the underbrush from the dense forest of affliction and discover, sure enough, they're shining. There's plenty of light there. In fact, you didn't lack any at all. And the more you, once you get that direction right and it, you turn it back, then you start moving down the path. And it's not outside at all. So he sees the beings are forever covered by the dense forest of afflictions and he feels 
sympathy and he wants to turn people around. So then you have these 24 paragons, 36 paragons of filial respect. And you soften to these old stories. What would a new paragon of filial respect look like? First of all, he'd probably have mom on his, among his Facebook friends. Right? He would get her an iPad and teach her how to use it. And she would go, that's so easy. One button. I like that. <laughs> and you'd uh, let her know that being a Buddhist is not so bad. Right? If mom is a Buddhist, that's, that helps already. But many moms who think that, what? As their friends tell them, Buddhism is superstitious. Or maybe they grew up in a culture, might have been Vietnam, might have been Taiwan, might have been China, might have been Malaysia, Singapore, where Buddhism was superstitious. Because the, the practices of the Dharma in many in, in popular culture for Christmas and Easter Buddhists, people who don't come very often, are thickly superstitious. I mean, now in China, if you go to some of the temples that are not cultivating temples, they're, you know, mm, tourist temples, let's say, for example, or ancient temples, one mile from the front gate, you start passing the incense cellars, the incense tables. And the closer you get, the bigger the incense sticks get. And right outside the gate, these are the people who have fought for that spot outside the gate. And they will have people telling you, you can't go in that temple without incense in your hands. The Buddha doesn't like that. And they will sell you a giant stick of incense, as much as they think you'll fork over, so that you go in with this huge stick of, that you have to like light for five minutes to get it lit. You know, and they have this... When you go in, they got this constant flame there, and you just toast your incense over the flame and turn it. Then you have to put it, pick your incense up and put it in the incense burner, which is huge. It's just as big as five of these bowing cushions together, all pouring smoke into the atmosphere, you know. And pretty soon, you know what they do? They hire young men to go through and scoop up the incense sticks so that the next bunch of tourists can have a place to put their incense sticks. So your, in- your incense that you paid hundreds of dollars for is lit for, you know, until you turn your back and then it's gone. And it's a racket. And it's because the Buddha will definitely frown upon you if you don't light incense to him. Well, that's superstitious. But that's exactly what's going on in, in many temples in China. It has become... You know, the Buddha is a marketer, and the Buddha judges you by the size of your incense. What a, what a joke. And if I were encountering Buddhism with fresh eyes, I looked at that, I would run the other way. I'd say, if this is really what, what Buddhism is about, no thank you. I like science. I'm going to go get baptized, because at least in Catholic Christian churches, there is no incense. You know. So, uh, anyway, so... It's possible that mom grew up in a world full of superstitious Buddhist practices. And for you, now this generation, to like come to a sutra lecture on a Saturday night, she's threatened. How come you picked up these super... Who taught you this kind of superstitious stuff? So sometimes it's hard to get near a mom or a dad who was raised in that. 
but you can. You can be really patient and find a way to, I think, the best thing that I know is don't talk about Buddhism. Don't use the language of Buddhism. Just be kind back. Mom on her radar will know that you're not money-grubbing, you're not greedy. When you talk to her, you listen, you actually spend time listening and don't, don't fight back the way we used to. She'll get the message quickly that there's something different in you. And bit by bit, without even saying, oh, you know, well, I'm a Buddhist, Mom. You, you get, she'll get the message really quickly. So that, I think, is the, you know, the most effective way to actually cross your parents over is just to stop the, the way I used to be. You know, she'll, she'll recognize. Because why in the phone calls that you call, keep calling her, you actually let her talk. And when you, she's done, you ask a question or two. And just that. And then when she hears in your voice that you're actually not as afflicted as you used to be, the things you talk about are not misery and pain and broken things, she'll wonder, what is different? And you can say, I I stopped eating meat. You what? You stopped eating meat? That must be that Buddhist place that's doing that. Actually, you know, my cholesterol's way down, Mom. And, you know, my, since I prove that I was following the Dean Ornish diet, my insurance premium has dropped 30%. Oh, you know. So they'll get, they'll get the, the message pretty quickly. And then that covering dense forest of afflictions by itself starts to lighten up and the inner light of virtue starts to shine. How funny. Okay. He sees that all beings lack the perspective of contemplation and he feels sympathy. Um, here, this, this, um, this line could be translated in a very funny way. Sees all living beings, not good contemplations. Making bad contemplations. In fact, it means it's unwholesome. But it means that the, the shan here can be translated as a noun or an adjective, good, but here it's more a verb, not skillful at, not, is, are no good at doing, are no good, not, not, it's not good. It's not that the contemplations they make are bad contemplations. It's they're no good at contemplating. So what does that mean? He sees that, um, remember our context was uh, the Bodhisattva has perceived the nature of all conditioned things and then saw the glory of the Dharma in allowing us not to attach to things that are falling apart. Living beings miss that both steps. Not only do we not see how things come and go, but further, the things that we that come to us, we grab, we cling to, we can't let go of. And so the suffering is double. Not only are we unwise about the nature of things, but we get emotionally attached to them. So there's a, in the um, Great Compassion Repentance that we, we do um, here every other week and at CTDB every day, there's um, a wonderful line in one of the contemplation parts where it says, 
from beginningless time with I, Jin, Wei Ban, love and views as the root, as the foundation, we have created the conditions for suffering. It's those two things that are the problem. I, Jin, love and views. Another way to translate that is to say things that move our feelings and things that confuse our minds. So both heart and head. We're in trouble in both heart and head. That is to say, because we don't see the nature of things, we misunderstand what, what things are. We go for the wrong things, and then we get emotionally attached to things too. So it's a double whammy that's happening here. Okay, so he Bodhisattva says, living beings are no good at seeing things. We can't see them the way they really are. He feels sympathy. We're moving on here. 见住众生无善法欲生爱民心. He sees that all beings do not desire wholesome dharmas, and he feels sympathy. What do we do? We are drowning in the ocean, and here comes a life preserver, and we don't grab it. We don't want it. We have a boat that'll carry us to the other shore, and we jump out of it. We don't desire wholesome dharmas. Okay? Y'all are following this? He sees that all beings lose the Buddha Dharma and he feels sympathy. So, um, did I told you about our experience with the monk in Burma. Um, in 1983, a group of us went around the world, starting in Taiwan and winding up in England. This is our first visit to Chithurst Forest Monastery at the end of the trip. But halfway through, we, we left India and went to Burma. And now our beloved president has uh, established a whole new relationship with Myanmar. Now we're going to have to call it Myanmar, I'm afraid, because we've now made friends with... Uh, actually, Aung San Suu Kyi is back, and so... Um, it would be nice if they went back to Burma. That would be great if they went back to that name. Anyway, so uh, it's a new day with Burma. In 1983, we, because of Master Hua having gone to Burma and having some uh, friends in the Buddhist establishment, we got visas to go to Burma. And there were very few Western monks in Burma, you should know, very few Mahayana monks in Burma. So we went to... Um, a very interesting place called Pagan, P-A-G-A-N. Some people call it Pahan, Pagan. Pagan is a city of thousands of stupas. Amazing place. The king in the 13th century emptied his treasury to build Buddhist powers, the relics, stupas, the pagodas. And uh, he somehow the architecture that they had there can't be reduplicated. They, they've sent, uh, you know, fact-finding missions, research architects, builders, contractors there to figure out how they did it. How did they make so many stupas in such a short time with the joints? They, they're looking for the mortar. They're trying to make the mortar. They think they used honey, human blood, hair, 
and some sort of special mud that they that they might have like emptied the riverbank because they can't find the stuff. Well, gee, you should go and research. They don't know what the what they used for mortar because they can't reconstruct it. They tried hard because these these stupas are beautifully built, and the joints are so tight, and they didn't have you know mixers. They didn't have cement. What did they? How did they do it? They haven't been able to reproduce it. Anyway, so there's. They, it was said that at its peak, you could stick out a foot, close your eyes and stick out a foot or a hand and touch a pagoda anywhere in Pagan. Not a pagoda, a stupa. Stupas have relics. Pagodas have images. We learned. So we got a chance to tour Pagan, and it's there were no motor vehicles, only ox carts through the whole town. They didn't want motor vehicles, and uh, we climbed up to the top of one of them. We're sitting there with our guide, and the guide spoke English, and he had been a taxi driver in New York for about ten years, gave it up, and went back to Pagan, and he was very. Uh, Sharp and insightful about his critique of the speed of Western civilization and how it had slowed down to a human speed in Pagan. And he, he, you know, Burmese men always smoke cheroots. They have these little funky cigar cigarettes. What are they called, Ajahn Kun? There's, there's a name for those. They're, is that just Burmese, right? It's not Thai. Yeah. So the Burmese all smoke little cheroots, and they wear their uh, skirts. Men wear skirts. And he was up there on the top with us, smoking his cheroot and his skirt. And he said, look. Look at this. Look out there. And we're looking out. We're on the, like the third floor up on this tall you know, stupa. And, and he says, how many people up there, out there do you think have headaches tonight? He says, how many people do you think feel alienated tonight? How many people up there feel lost out there? Take a look. He said, and we're looking and you know, can't see anybody, but he's, he's like generalizing. And he says, I'll tell you, he says, in my apartment building in Manhattan, he said, there are more afflicted people in that apartment building than the whole country of Burma tonight. I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> and he said, yeah, there's a point, you know. And he said, look at them. He said, they don't need money. They know where the food is tomorrow. He says, they all have cheroots to smoke. He said, you, you know, if the, the man wants to get married, they... You get married, and, and if the woman doesn't want to marry the man, she shouldn't have to, you know. And, and he said, what do people like to do here? He says, they like to make merit. He says, they like to plant blessings in the Buddha Dharma. So what do they do? If they don't have kids, they sponsor a kid to leave home. He said, they go find a kid who's a good candidate, and they pay for him to leave home. That's what they do. So what do they do here? They don't, they don't make... Cars, they don't make skyscrapers, they make monks here. <laughs> Whole country's a monk factory, he said. Or, you know, okay, okay, okay. So he's, he's kind of over the top, but you could get his point. And, of course, you have to, apparently, you have to pay to leave home because you have to get your robes and you have to get your training. But you can leave home for a year, two years, three years. Many men do, most men do. He went on to say, yeah, he says, we all get a chance to leave home. And in fact, you know, he says, uh, women like guys who've been monks for a while. They make better husbands, he said. He says, they, they're, they're more pliable, he said. So, so it's like <laughs> he's giving us this whole sociological breakdown on Burmese society in relation to the Dharma. So.
All right. So next day we were hosted by this monk. Back to the story. This monk came in. He um, was a, a bright light in the Burmese Sangha because why? He had relatives in Los Angeles. And he had spent part of his childhood growing up in the U.S. and spoke really good English. And uh, then came back to, to Burma after going to college and became a monk. So he was put in charge of five monasteries. He was the young, promising abbot of five monasteries. And the, our informant up on the roof told us, too big, too fast, he said. Too big, too fast. But, he said, a good monk. Anyway, he said, he won't last. He's got too much on his shoulders. So, okay, okay, thank you. So, we, uh, we had lunch with him the next day. This monk invited us to come and receive offerings. And the Burmese lay people had never seen Mahayana monks looking the way we did. We didn't have the right color robes, and, you know. But they were willing, because this monk took us under his wing, they were willing to, uh, to make offerings to us. So we met uh, in the, the uh, uh, kind of the commons room of this uh, stupa. And the, the lay people, uh, we were, the three monks were sitting at a, at a table. And the lay people came, and, and the cooks at Berkeley Monastery would have totally have approved of this scene. You should, they just kept bringing the food, and bringing the food, and bringing the food, dish upon dish. And they would set it down in front of us, and the monk would reach out and touch it with his hand. He would touch it with his hand, meaning, what, cuppy. You know, officially it had been received. It was clean. They would take it and stack it up. And the dishes started to stack up, stack three deep, four deep, five deep. And there was fruits we'd never seen. There was meat and fish and eggs and turtles and chickens and ducks and, and just vegetables and, you know, food and food and food. And so we're going, uh, when does it stop? <laughs> I was like, he said, no, that's okay. He said, this is their, they love to make offerings to the Sangha. And he said, it'll stop when, when they're done. You know? So when we were done, we had this groaning table with plates stacked five deep of all kinds of food. And, uh, you know, we're going, well, how much of this are we, supposed to, are we responsible for? He said, oh, whatever you eat normally, he said, just take a little. What are you going to do with the rest? He said, watch. So, so he, we touched every dish, you know, where they're touching dishes, touching them, receiving all this food. And so, you know, we, he says, you don't have to eat the meat. Don't worry about it. You know, you're vegetarian. It's fine. So we took some vegetarian dishes and sat back. And then we ate slowly. And then the, uh, he put his palms together and, and uh, did a, a blessing and the lay people stood up and rushed the table. And the table was clean in about 60 seconds. And the lay people just dived into the blessed food. So by they, they were part of the meal. And the monks ate first, but all the rest, having been offered to the Sangha, was now blessed food. And it was amazing to see how the joy that came from this relationship between laity and sangha. Okay, now, why do I, why did I tell you this story about Pagan? Because the sutra says, beings do not desire wholesome dharmas and they lose the Buddha dharma and he feels sympathy. The monk, 
who spoke really good English um, and who had spent time growing up in L.A., said, oh, okay, you come from a city of 10,000 Buddhists, right? Yeah. He said, well, I've heard of that place. Yeah. He said, I hope to get there someday. I'll be by. Okay. He said, now, what do you all cultivate up there? He said, well, uh, you know, mostly standard Mahayana practices. No, no, he says, I really want to know, what do you practice? What, what's, what's your dharma? Well, we, uh, we follow our teacher, you know, Master Shenhua. He's a Chan monk and does Pure Land. But I'll tell you what is his favorite dharma. We don't, as best we can, we don't fight. We're not greedy. We don't seek best we can. We're not trying to be selfish. We don't want to be greedy for ourselves, personal advantage. We don't lie. There's a pause. And the monk says, no, come on, you can level with me. Tell me, what do you actually practice there? He says, I practice everything. He says, I cultivate every single Dharma door. He said, I meditate, I do Vipassana, I do Shamatha, I do Anapanasatis, I do contemplations, I use the Vasudhimaga, and I use the Amitabha Sutra. He says, I got a, a full body immersion tank, I meditate underwater. He says, you can do it later tonight with me if you want. He's, you know, he says, I meditate up in trees. I've meditated in airplanes. And <laughs> he goes, you can tell me what you actually practice. Come on, I'm inside. I'm an insider. He says, we really do try hard not, not to fight and be greedy. And, you know, we're trying to learn the precepts from the mind ground, if you know what I mean. He goes, no, I don't. You guys don't trust me, huh? Well, maybe if you get to know me, then you'll tell me your secrets. <laughs> okay, you know, maybe later. He didn't want to hear that the six guidelines are what we actually practice. You know, he wanted something wonderful. He, he said he himself cultivates 40 different dharmas all the time. As far as I'm concerned, he had lost the Buddha dharma. And I felt sympathetic with him because he was greedy for dharma methods. And no single one was ever going to end his afflictions because he was collecting dharma. If, if he was a Boy Scout, they would have been Dharmador merit badges on his sash. You know? Merit badge dharmas. So as far as I was concerned, he lost the Buddha dharma because he was seeking quantity over quality. When is he going to get enough? So just for what it's worth... We heard later, five years later, strange to say, this promising, bright, good, intelligent monk came back to L.A. and was shot and killed in a restaurant burglary in Los Angeles. His brother was a restaurateur in L.A., Burmese restaurant, and some kind of mafia caught him in the restaurant by mistake, and he was shot and killed. I have forgotten his name in the meantime, but it was a huge thing. This is in the, the uh, uh, late 80s. This is about five years after we got back. And it was tragic because this is a really promising monk and one of the bright lights in the Burmese Sangha. But somebody caught him in the wrong place, and he, he shouldn't have been there late at night when the burglars came in, but he was, and he died. Anyway, that's... Uh, 
I'll never forget him telling us about his meditation immersion tank and meditating in airplanes. You should try it. He says, talk about emptiness. It's really something up there. All right. He sees that all beings flow with birth and death, and he feels sympathy. So, flowing with birth and death, how does one do that? Um, Effortlessly. It takes nothing at all to flow with birth and death. Um, But boy, if you want to turn against that flow, it's hard. the perfect example, uh, they, you know, there's this, this great cliche. They say, uh, uh, Cultivating a way is like trying to row a boat upstream. If you, as soon as you stop making effort, you flow back. You go backwards. And that's cause why it's such a beautiful image. Trying to row a boat upstream is hard because the water is coming at you, right? And you're just you're pulling against the current. If it was still water, you'd make a lot of progress. But it seems like you're standing still because the water is coming against you. As soon as you stop, as soon as you rest the oars, whew, the current takes you right back where you were. That's what cultivation is like. Cultivation, ru ni shui, xin jiu, xin jiu. Like moving your boat upstream. If you don't make progress, you will certainly retreat. So what an interesting visual image that is. Um, What's it also like? Do you hear the cliché from the martial arts world? This was one that Marty loved to to, uh, exhort himself with. This came from the Wu school. Master Jiang would say, Ah, ha, he would say, one day of Kung Fu practiced, one day of Kung Fu gained. Ha, one day of Kung Fu not practiced, ten days of Kung Fu lost. Ha, not fair, ha, he would say. (laughs) Whoa, where's the math? Who does the math on that? So one day of practice yields one day of Kung Fu. One day of practice skipped, you lose ten days of Kung Fu. Like, Seems really unfair, you know. but he would say, "It's the way it is." So, ni shui xingzhou cultivation is like that. That's what flowing with birth and death. To flow with birth and death, all you have to do is get out of bed or stay in bed, and you flow with birth and death. If you want to flow with the sages, nirvana flow, you have to actually push against it. You have to. Put your, knee, put your feet down and refuse to go along with what? The greedy thoughts in your mind, the angry thoughts in your mind, the deluded thoughts in your mind, the jealous thoughts in my mind, the doubtful, low self-esteem thoughts in my mind, thinking I'm worse than everybody. Because we're not. You're not better than everybody, but you're not worse than it. You're probably the same as everybody. Just to see those thoughts rise and say, no. I don't believe any of that stuff. That's all called wangxiang, false thoughts. That is exactly refusing to flow with birth and death. Using no fighting, no greed, no seeking in your own mind is precisely turning, it's ni shui xing going against the flow of birth and death. 
And it seems so like nothing, but it's the real thing. So that's he feels sympathy with people who miss that and look for the distant branch tips. He sees that all beings lose the means to liberation and he feels sympathy. Tomorrow, um, tomorrow down at Gold Sage is the um, first day of the Yang Hong Bao Chan. Was today the first day? Tomorrow. The uh, Emperor Liang's repentance ceremony. And they're starting it with the eightfold precepts. Ba Guan Zai Jie. And the eightfold precepts are this Talk about an expedient to liberation, a means to liberation. This is, uh, um, when you think about it, it's, it's really so countercultural. It's just not what popular culture would say is a good time or worthwhile, which is what people volunteer. To for either, usually it's for one day and one night, but if you're doing the um, entire repentance, it can be ten days and ten nights, or a weekend or a week. Some people take them for longer. Uh, our trainees at City of 10,000 Buddhas, people uh, experiencing what it's like to leave home, take them for a longer time. But the, the standard is one day and one night, 24 hours. They put themselves in jail for 24 hours from the standards of popular culture, of what the world says is the good stuff. So they say, I'm not going to kill, steal, engage in any sexual conduct, uh, lie, use intoxicants. I'm not going to use perfumes, oils, powders, unguents, fragrant bombs. I'm not going to sleep on high, broad, or large beds. I'm not going to listen to entertaining diversions or sing or dance or watch football. Uh, I'm not going to uh, eat at improper times. You know, those are the... There's ten novice precepts. These are the, the guidelines for monastics compressed into eight. And they do it voluntarily in front of the Buddhas, and tomorrow morning at 7.30, there's going to be, the room's going to be packed. It's cold at Gold Sage. They don't have heaters in the Buddha hall, but tomorrow morning it's not going to be cold because of the ambient kilo, kilograms, the, the heat, the uh, joules, gigajoules of heat coming off these bodies in that room. Warm it up. It's amazing. Warmth in numbers. Uh, it's, this is a very popular ceremony. And people work to get these precepts. You kneel, you bow, you, you, you kneel and recite until your throat is hoarse and promise to do something that most people don't want to do. You know, live like a Buddhist monastic for 24 hours, three days, seven days, ten days, longer. And it's really moving to see people actually do the work 
the Buddha outlined, which is what? Start with your character, that is to say precepts, then find a way to concentrate your mind, whatever it might be, in the repentance, the case of the repentance is easy because you're bowing, you're chanting. The, the Liang, Emperor Liang's repentance is a beautiful ceremony. Wow. If only in English we could get the feel of that ceremony. It's, it's so beautifully done. The, the prose itself, it just gives you a feeling as you bow. And then you, you sing, you kneel, you bow, you chant, you recite, you bow, you kneel. It's, it's amazing. It's the, the dharma in that ceremony that comes through the text. Anyway, you do that all day long, and then what happens you feel your mind change. You feel concentrated. You feel like there's the dense forest of afflictions has been pruned back a lot. And things look different. Relationships look different. Problems look different. Burdens look lighter. Problem, uh, uh, you know, obstacles just solve themselves. It's an amazing experience when you realize that it's precepts, concentration, and insight. Shila Samadhi Prajna is the Buddha's own formula and it's so unpopular. People, I mean, for those who are there, it's, it's hot. But for other folks, it's like, you what? You did what? For how long? Good grief. Who forced you to do that? How much did they pay you to do that? No, no, it's the other way around. I paid for the opportunity. It's like, oh, wow, that's different, isn't it? The expedients to liberation are so, like, unglamorous. But that's the real thing. There's no doubt that Shila Samadhi Prajna is the Buddha's formula for awakening. And in the process, we turn our lives around. Things look really different when you use Dharma principles to analyze. You can cope you can get through. Not only do you get out, but you, get, you make it through. So, very wonderful to see that. And um, ordinarily, I lecture on the Sutra Golden Light, but tomorrow, um, after the precepts, we're going to talk about the precepts. And I'm going to talk about the six guidelines a lot. Our monk in Burma um, who wouldn't believe that that's really what we do because it's true that to stop the flow of birth and death, you don't need any actual river. You don't need a boat to to go upstream with. You simply, you're in the boat of your thoughts, the boat of your mind, and you have to just recognize that impulse towards asserting yourself as right, i.e. fighting, You have to recognize that impulse towards if a little is good, then more is better. And see how that just poisons the experience of whatever you're eating, drinking, or consuming. Instead of enjoying what you have, you go for more and automatically miss the experience that you have. Greed is a poison. You you see it and you say, nope, not going to do that. And you have gone against the flow of birth and death, right on the spot. You know. So I'm going to talk about that a lot, how the mind is really the, the, the place of the flow of birth and death. And those six guidelines are the boat that goes upstream. 
You just have to start rowing and you actually do it. So that's, that's going to happen tomorrow, the Eightfold Precepts. And I, I am definitely going to punch up the six guidelines as the, the, the method of cultivation. Yeah. Okay, so that's tomorrow. And I also want to say that because it starts so early, we're going to end tonight at 9. We're not going to go till 9.30. If there's anybody in the back who is like timing it so they could come in for the stories, you better tell them. So they, <laughs> they're going to come in at 9 o'clock and it's going to be all over. So we, we need to be on the road at 6 in the morning. So we're going <coughs> to, instead of going to 9.30, we're going to stop at 9. Um, so we've had our bodhisattva be sympathetic towards living beings and... The, um, let me give you a preview of coming attractions. What's happening is what the third ground started with the Bodhisattva looking at, quote, conditioned things. What, have you got a good vocabulary for this one? Conditioned things? No? They were, this, oh, I know. Uh, Dr. Akpinar mentioned that Hung Chan Shi, one of our senior nuns, is writing her MA thesis on revisiting a lot of the words that we've been translating uh, in, in English that may not have connected to a lot of people and the first one that they mentioned that she was working on was conditioned dharmas I thought oh no that's the one we're using on Saturday night so we're still uh, this is your way right things that have that are made of other things we spent like two lectures talking about things made of other things conditioned dharmas component dharmas um collaborative, cooperative dharmas, dharmas made of things, you know, assembled dharmas. Uh, And it's talking about everything that isn't space or nirvana. Those are the unconditioned dharmas. So we're looking. Ture, you got a suggestion? No? I saw your hand go. Thinking, okay. So, yeah, if anybody can come up with a new translation of Yawefa, then we're cooking and it's it means everything i mean like we said the flowers are volatile they their conditions fall apart quick they wilt you know human bodies a little longer this glass tabletop longer longer plastic this morning we had an object upstairs we couldn't identify it was a in fact when you folded it out it was a a tabletop for a bedside so you could be like have a Put your lap, you could type in bed, put your laptop on it and type. But when it was all folded up, it was unidentifiable. And further, it was made of plastic that is not going to decay for a very long time. It was molded, injected plastic. And man, that's here for the millennium. I don't, that's barely a conditioned dharma. It's almost in the realm of unconditioned. Because it's <laughs> indestructible, boy. And probably made by the thousands and thousands and thousands in China for pennies, you know. So, anyway, conditioned arms. The Bodhisattva identified those, and then he said, they are unreliable. They cause us pain, and we don't know it, and we suffer. And he feels sympathy. Okay? So that's where we are. And it's combined with looking at the Buddha Dharma and saying, wow, the Buddha Dharma is free of those problems and it's the the door that takes us out of conditioned dharmas, but living beings don't know it and 
darn. You know, you can feel the bodhisattva's frustration as he looks and sim- as he looks at these beings and goes, "Man, they really, really don't get it. They really, really, really don't get it." And so, what suffer? They suffer, and yet here's the door, and they go that way. Come on over here. They go that way. So that's that's how our chapter starts. Where is he going with this? Psychic powers. This is the chapter that actually brings Shantung forward. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to get the real story on Shantung. I, I slam Shantung here regularly because in our Chinese-Vietnamese Buddhist world, people are, you know, they really work with Shantung as if they're completely there. Whereas Westerners run the other way when you mention psychic powers. Come here Thursday night, sit in this spot, and tell the Spirit Rock Vipassana group that, that they, if they meditate really hard, they can have knowledge of others' thoughts, knowledge of past lives, that they can you know, fly through the air in full lotus, and, and they will go, uh, could we get back to meditation, please, and what the Buddha actually taught, the Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path. And they don't get it. Anybody who's had a scientific, rational education doesn't get the magical side of Buddhism right away. Okay? And people where the Dharma has been around for a long time are very ready to hear about psychic powers. It's very interesting because it's genuinely a cultural, cultural crevice. You'll, there's a, a gap here. So uh, coming up, the Bodhisattva is telling us about real psychic powers. So from now on, anybody who's uh, brother and sister who are on the periphery of Buddhism back home and talk about stockbrokers with psychic powers and, and uh, orthodontists with psychic powers, I kid you not, um, you can say, well, yeah, I have the sutras telling us about psychic powers. Let's, let's compare your shantong with the bodhisattvas. So that's coming up. It's going to be very, very interesting. Okay, now... Um, Let's do what we usually do, which is transfer the merit first and then move on to some announcements and such. Dharma as you make a wish to share your merit. Share the fruits of 
Hey.